Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. I've got a few housekeeping issues to talk about, and then I'm going to get into what I've been working on, and then I'm going to have a good topic for everybody today. So first thing of order is I would hope that everybody who listens to this thing that subscribes through Spotify or Apple or whatever you know vehicle you use gets in and gives us a five-star rating and provides a positive comment. I'm eventually going to give out prizes, and of course, you know, that's going to come with some benefit to you all for listening. I've gotten a ton of feedback. A lot of people have mostly complained that they're not long enough, and I want to stick to what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm running a business. You know, this takes a lot of time for me to make sure that a podcast comes out weekly and I'm providing, you know, content. And I also want to talk about, I'm going to be adding some people to this podcast more than likely over time. I've been talking to a few individuals that I've got prior relationships with that are going to add a lot of value to things. On top of this, I don't want to always talk about my business and I don't want this to be all about me, but I'm going to talk a little bit about my business today. You know, I travel all over the place. I'm, I'm located in New York. I'm in central New York and I work in clients really localized, uh, Pennsylvania, New York State, Vermont, New Hampshire, but I, I get a chance to travel out of state and I've really been fortunate to be able to do this and there's a lot that goes into my process and I really think that you know, a lot of people don't recognize when you hunt these highly pressured states and have a keen interest and on some, in some cases out of necessity can evaluate these properties and come up with kind of a logical step and plan. On most properties, you know, I take a very fine eye and have a very detailed approach to things to get you to the end game. And I was out in Wisconsin recently, I had a great client out there, I really just had a great time with him. And I, I think I re-scoped and reshaped his mindset. And a lot of times, even in this discussion today, I want people to be open-minded about change. There's so many things we can do. And a lot of times we'll get wrapped into, you know, recommendation on YouTube, this number one plant, you know, to plan on the landscape, this, you know, this number one thing to do across your property. I have not worked on one property where I've provided one recommendation or one plant. If you're providing recommendations that are that simple, then you're not going to get the net result that you want at the end of the day. Bar none. That's how it works. So if everybody's stuck on a particular plant and that plant you think is going to get you to the end game, it's not likely to be the case. So don't get, you know, tied up or, you know, overindulgent in the, you know, the YouTube information that's out there. Take a step back and say, okay, well, maybe there's 50 or 20 or 100 plants. I mean, whatever the case may be, 
you know, there could be a multitude of plants that you could employ on your property. And planting plants is probably not the first step in improving your property. That may be a secondary, third, or maybe a last step. But it's not the end-all, be-all. So I want to make sure that people understand my perspective on that because many times I go to client properties and they say, oh, well, they told me to plant red rose or dogwood. That will be my, you know, mainstay, you know, principal change that's going to get me to the to the end game. Or that's the only plant that I can I can recommend. Today, we're going to talk about plants a little bit, and I'm going to give you alternatives, and I'm going to give you some options, not just from a recommendation standpoint, but we're going to talk about, you know, native and non-native plants in the landscape. All right, let me get into the topic. So native plants, to me, were something that I paid no attention years and years ago. I didn't even really know what was native or non-native. And then as I developed kind of more of a keen sense of things, I didn't really think that non-native plants were a big deal. They've naturalized on the landscape. They're here. And we'll talk a little bit about statistics behind it, but these plants aren't going away. And that's the scary part for a lot of people. There's a lot of these forums and people that are pushing and pushing and pushing. You know, stay natural. You know, focus on plants that are in your your locality. And don't think necessarily those people are wrong. I think a lot of cases those people are 100% correct. But it's hard to get my clients recognizing that non-native plants on the landscape can be a big deal. When I walk across a property, there's a discussion about, oh, do you see that plant over there? Do you know what it is? Many times they don't know what it is. Well, do you know what it, it does? Is it a negative or a positive? You know, what does it do for the environment? And so I don't know every plant, but the ones that I pay attention to are ones that are not on the landscape that are native. And I definitely focus on the ones that create a lot of interference. So let's go into some basic definitions. So a native plant to me is a plant that existed pre-European settlement. These plants were here for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. They existed. And many times when we talk about plants across the landscape, we, we kind of subrogate them into regions uh, eco-regions. So like the New England area has these suite of plants and the Midwest has these suite of plants. And of course, every state has different plants within it. And some, you know, local DNRs or, you know, communities promote, you know, naturalized plants in those individual landscapes. The best thing you can do is drive around and start identifying plants and recognizing what are native and not native and recognizing those ones that are native. How well are they doing? Are they all over the place? Are they in limited quantities? So non-native plants are kind of like the alien plants, the, the foreign exotic plants that didn't really exist in any of these areas. You know, they were either transported here a lot of times by cargo ships. You know, humans brought them across for horticulture purposes. Or in some case, you know, uh, animals have, have transported them here. But non-native plants, even though, you know, you're thinking about their benefit, and some of them are benefit have beneficial elements and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, a lot of them don't have as many benefits and you may have better i guess plant compatibilities the soils that we have on our landscape do well when the natural communities the plant communities that exist in those individual microclimates interact and the soils are intended to promote those individual plants so taking a plant from let's say alaska and bringing it to you know, a local ecoregion in New York, it may not do as well as you had hoped. And of course, you know, I've got examples where I've taken plants from, 
you know, the western part of the U.S., and I've emplaced them in New York State. And in some cases, my clients, it takes a lot of work and effort to get rid of those plants that are not native on the landscape. And those that have naturalized, they almost think, well, if I cut that, a bird's just going to come in and go to the bathroom, and there's going to be that plant again. Or, by the way, seeds dropped all over the place, and it's just going to continue to proliferate across the landscape. And in some cases, that may be completely true. Let me throw a quick statistic out for you. And I've had to deal with this many times where I have a field setting and there's all these like non-native plants in the field. And we say, well, you got to get rid of them, but they provide cover. I don't want to get rid of my cover. Okay. If you don't want to get rid of your cover, how long after you cut that plant, is it going to revive or is there going to be a shrub replacing that plant? Well, immediately the plant could come back if you're not getting rid of it mechanically and then spraying it and people don't want to use herbicide. Uh, and a quick tip there is I use propane torches a lot and I burn the plant. You could set a fire through there to kill some of those plants. But recognize that the plants on the landscape are there for a particular purpose. And many times it's disturbance. You know, somebody's come through with a machine and they've wrecked an area and these non-native plants have kind of created a stakehold in that area. So thinking about, okay, how long does it take for a shrub to grow in that place in the same form that it already has? It could take five to seven or even 10 years. Well, alternatively, maybe I should recommend a replacement plant. And we'll talk today, the focus is replacement plants for non-native plants that are in the landscape. So we're going to try to replace those non-natives. Some of this is focused on the Northeast, so I apologize, but the thought process should start to get people there to think more about it. When we're talking about non-native plants, there's another principle of invasiveness or interference level, Um, you know, or naturalized a part of the landscape or it's become naturalized as as a result of being on the landscape, but an exotic plant that exists. And that exotic plant is going to basically take over an area. It's going to consume, you know, all the open areas. You know, if you cut a canopy, it's going to, there's a gap phase. It's going to just proliferate that area. It's going to be the only plant. It, it basically takes over. That becomes problematic because you don't get a lot of biodiversity when you have one plant in a single area. It's not a good thing. And some of these plants that I'm going to talk about today, they do that really, really, really well. And we need to get rid of those on the landscape. And I'll talk about doing that in phases because I just said it could take five, seven, ten years for a shrub to form replacing that plant that you just killed. So we'll talk a little bit more about that when we're talking about design. So one of the things I want to suggest is finding these plants online. You can Google search and figure out, okay, what's a non-native plant in my area? You can do all those searches. There's a, there's a plant atlas that I use and identifies invasive plants. It subcategorizes them. It provides descriptions and pictures and it explains why they're bad. The biggest question that I've had over the years is, okay, if these plants are on my property and they're all over the place, and they're not benefiting my deer herd. They're not giving me any food value or cover value. They're not doing anything for me, and they're here, and I've got to take them out, and i got to get rid of them. That seems like a lot of time, okay? And then I have to potentially replace it, yep. And you're also saying that it did produce, let's just say uh, it produces a berry, and, and that's likely to be all over across my landscape, and there's a seed content you know, basically, you know, throughout my entire property, and it's going to continue to just be ever-present. I'm going to have to deal with it forever. Yeah, essentially you are. I mean, there's going to be maintenance forever on these properties, and you're going to have to have awareness of that as time goes on. 
And again, if you want to do the naturalized route, you could burn the area. You could burn it during the right time of year when they're growing. You could uh, use a torch, like I explained earlier, or you could use herbicide. And you could either foliar spray, cut the plant down, spray the stem. There's a lot of options for you. But of course, you know, you've got to do something about it and recognize it's never going to go away because most likely the people all around you aren't doing anything about it. So if these plants list, you know, existed for hundreds of years on our landscape and they essentially became naturalized, are they just really kind of like a part of our natural ecosystem? They're not. Now, there's been studies that have, you know, shown that some non-native plants, I'm not going to get into specific names with those, actually benefit some of the animals across the landscape. Kudzu is probably one example. I said I wasn't going to do it, but kudzu is one example. Deer consume kudzu in the south tremendously, but it creates a very, you know, dense thicket cover forming plant. And it, you know, basically eliminates other plants from growing in and around it. So even though it becomes a food source, it creates a lot of interference. And that's the thing that we're trying to stick away from. We don't want a volume of one plant. We don't want monocultures. We want polycultures. So a lot of plants across the landscape. So these opportunistic non-native plants, they have advantages, competitive advantages. Some produce fungus, and the science community has talked a lot about, you know, how they've dealt with those, and they're trying to genetically modify plants to, you know, coexist with the fungus. That would be the American chestnut. And, you know, these plants have taken a hold. And, you know, one thing that there's been studies done recently is the insect populations, and these insect populations are food sources for a lot of our birds, our turkeys, are declining at a rapid rate. Some of the bird populations are declining so rapidly, you know, in concert with the insect population, they're going to have more insects and and potentially birds on the endangered species list as a result. You know, there's got to be this food exchange, this energy exchange, and if it's not, you know, ever present, it becomes a problem. All right, let's talk about American chestnuts real quick, and we'll probably do a podcast with Tim Russell on this at a later date because he's a, he's a chestnut freak. He loves talking about chestnuts. This fungus that came over, and they said it was a Chinese fungus that existed, it creates you know basically internal and exterior cankers, interior to the bark and on the uh, the cambium layer, and basically it, it kills the American chestnut. So this you know this came. Uh, you know, in, into America in the early 1900s, you know, where they introduced, you know, some Asian plants, whether they were the Chinese chestnut or some other species. And this fungus, you know, basically spread across the landscape. I, I forget what the statistics were, so don't quote me on this, but something like spreading like 50 miles a year. And eventually the American chestnut across the eastern seaboard was gone. And it just basically just disappeared. And it provided a huge food source for animals. And, it, you know, the one thing that's funny is I was I was on vacation a couple of years ago. My wife and I were on vacation and we went to this um, really, really cool uh, hotel and uh, they had Amer- American chestnut, you know, sprouting all over the place. And some of the trees are really, really tall. And I, I said to my wife, I said, Hun, you rarely see this. And I've been on client properties in New York where American chestnut is, is uh, all over the place. And it doesn't get to an age where it actually produces nuts. Now, you'll find these anomalies. Well, there'll be a chestnut in some location where, you know, it's able to produce. And, and of course, they've hybridized some of these chestnuts to, you know, to produce. Uh, Dunstan is one of those. And so those, you know, chestnut 
producing plants can be planted across the landscape. But the root collar and the root are not susceptible to the fungus, but the tree is. So as the tree develops, it eventually experiences these cankers and, and dies. And that's kind of the sad part. Horticulturists introducing plants, and then we lose an entire suite of plants on the eastern U.S. I mean, the American chestnut is gone. That's a, that's a huge negative. And it's a huge food source. It's a food source for deer. And so now we have, what are the alternatives to that, right? People are planting, you know, a hybridized or Chinese chestnut. And again, you know, you can question the, the action in that. But, you know, a lot of times it becomes a food source that, that helps, you know, the local uh, animals uh, on the landscape. So there's a lot of weighing of these different factors. Let's talk about another one, the emerald ash borer. You know, that's uh, native to Russia, Japan, you know, Korea, China, those particular areas. That was brought over in a cargo ship. And you know it. You've seen it on your landscape. If you have ash, the ash is dying all over the place. I did a timber cut on my own property a few years ago, and immediately the ash borer was like, you could see the borers all over the place. And I just couldn't believe it. So insects can destroy. So we talked about fungus. Now we're talking about insects. And they can destroy our landscapes. So that's another thing to think of when we're talking about, you know, all these different non-native, you know, different issues that we're experiencing. All right, so let's talk a little bit more. And I'll give you a specific example. So this is something I had read about years and years ago. It's a, you know, it's talking a little bit about animals. So we did, you know, the, uh, the fungal, the insect. Now we're going to talk about animals. Bullfrogs. And I know guys that like to hunt bullfrogs. That's a big fun thing to do. Um, but bullfrogs in my area are really, really ever-present. They're all over these different vernal pools and in these ponds and you know uh, slow-standing streams, and you see them all over the place. Well, they were introduced out west, and I forget what years. It was probably like, I'm thinking in the 80s, uh, they were introduced in large abundance, and they've taken over. They've displaced a lot of native amphibians in those areas. And essentially, bullfrogs, because they're larger, they're more mobile, they eat algae, they eat, you know, other frog eggs. I mean, they basically uh, are tadpoles as well. They, they take over these areas, and they've displaced the local frogs in, you know, in parts of, of the West Coast. You know, this these bullfrogs that we think are natural to our landscape in the, in the East you know, have transitioned over to the West and they've made, you know, these major changes to the ecosystem. So just think about that when you're introducing something in the landscape, it could have an impact, even if it is, you know, native to our individual area. So it's good to have awareness of that. And the other thing I want to say is it's hard to blame people for a lot of these things. It's hard to finger point and say, you know, this DNR is wrong or this individual is crazy for doing that. Everyone has a different perspective and knowledge base that we have to kind of just recognize and i think i would suggest if you're on your property and you're saying to myself i've got all these plants i just bought i bought them from this x y and z nursery and i'm putting them in and it's going to be my my savior which you know i explained earlier may be problematic for you recognize that some of those plants may not be native and start to think about that i know so many people that in their landscapes are putting all these non-native plants. And again, we talked about insect decline. That's really, really important. Insects help propagate plants. We need those, right? Because those plants could be food sources for our deer. And that's really, really important. All right, let's not blame anybody, but recognize that some of these DNR institutions years ago introduced plants like autumn olive, uh, multiflora rose, you know, some of the honeysuckles, you know, some of the bush honeysuckles that are out there. 
they've used those for wildlife benefit. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, maybe why those aren't so beneficial to the landscape, but they've introduced them. And when they introduced them, what did they do? They sold them to hundreds and hundreds of people and they put them across the landscape. They're not native. None of those are native to our landscape. And what does that do? It changes the whole ecosystem. All right, let's talk about by the numbers. And this is really important because I'm going to focus on my state. New York has one of the highest numbers of non-native plants introduced in the entire U.S. I'm not sure if California is higher, uh, but I know New York is one of the highest. There's over 1,100 plants that have been introduced across this New York state span that I work in that I have to deal with. Of those, we focus on five, 10 key different plants. But generally speaking, there's a ton of them out there. Wisconsin, which I just said I was at, has over 500 introduced non-native plants over the years. Texas, just under 700 plants. Now, these numbers are a little bit old, but statistically, it says there's a lot of non-native plants on the landscape. And lastly, Pennsylvania, of course, is close to New York, you know, has just around 1,000 non-native plants across the landscape. Let me talk to you about a plant that I deal with on my own property. I have smooth broom grass. It's an Eastern European plant. It's all over the place. It's typically on my field edges, and I have to deal with it. And the reason I hate it is because I know it was introduced in a lot of different areas for grazing purposes. Sometimes they match it with alfalfa. It's a cool season plant, and it likes to grow in grasslands and meadows. The thing about grasses is they're sod forming. They don't let anything else grow around them. We're trying to promote legumes and forbs, right? Leafy plants and those forbs, you know, typically, let's start with legumes. Legumes are typically nitrogen fixers. The nitrogen that's available is consumed normally by some adjacent plant. And, uh, you know, legumes likely a forb. And in those cases, those forbs are able to produce a source of food for our deer. And if you have sod forming grass, again, you're not promoting a naturalized plant that could be in the landscape that's native that is a source of food. And the problem with that broom grass is it produces a ton of seed. It takes over an entire area. It's rhizomial from the roots, meaning it spreads really, really rap- rapidly. And it outcompetes pretty much everything that's around it. So I had to go in and spray a select herbicide for that particular plant and killed it to get it out of there. I'm trying to promote like natural asters. In my case, it's New England aster, which is a consumable plant. Blazing star, which is a consumable. Uh, Blazing star, which is consumable. Those are some of the plants that I'm seeing on my landscape. I have really kind of rich soil. And I'm trying to think of another one. Uh, milkweed is an example of. But what I would say is those grasses, if you want grasses there, try to select a grass a good example of a grass may be, I'm trying to think offhand, oh, uh, like a big blue stem, uh, maybe an, an Indian grass or cord grass. Those are natural grasses that would be a replacement option if you're dealing with broom grass and you want to say, okay, I'm going to kill this and I'm going to replant. And getting rid of some of that sod forming grass can be one of the best things that, that you deal with. Uh, the other things that tend to notice when I see the broom grass is orchard grass. And I've got orchard grass all over the place. I'm constantly dealing with it. It's kind of a clump grass and, you know, things like these like little blue stem, you know, switch grass, those grasses can outcompete orchard grass, but you know, orchard grass seems to be very present in a lot of the mixes that I'm seeing for grazing animals. And of course, you know, sometimes farmers don't care necessarily about, you know, what their animals are eating as long as it's in abundance. And, and sometimes it's hard to blame somebody for that. So don't, don't place blame, but recognize that, 
you know, obviously the intention is to provide food on the landscape, but that's not food for our deer. And that's what we're focused on. All right. Let's talk about a little bit more about some of the basics. And this to me is really, really important. When I look at a landscape and I'll I'll take uh, any property that I've been on, uh, you notice a lot of deer browse. Deer have a tendency to eat more native plants and you'll notice a lot of the non-native plants not being consumed. Now, because it's native doesn't mean it's going to be consumed by deer. And also because it's non-native doesn't mean that it's not going to be consumed by deer. So recognize when you have a landscape setting and you're trying to promote a lot of the forbs in a lot of cases, you may notice that they're not in large abundance on your landscape. They're the first things to be consumed. And a lot of these non-native plants are not being consumed. So one thing you can do on your property is take an inclusion cage. Don't just do it for food plots. Take a cage and put it out 10 feet by 10 feet and mark it off. And if that area gets a lot of sun, compare the plants that are inside that cage versus outside that cage and measure the amount of forbs or compare the number of plants. And you may not even need to know what the plant is, but compare the number of plants and just see the similarities or differences and see the volume of them. You know, and, and th- that would be really kind of a good test for you to say, okay, well, the deer consuming, a lot of these plants are in this naturalized site, and I'm trying to see if, you know, maybe some of these plants are good. And when I'm designing a hunting property, I'm thinking about how I create exclusion for deer. Not every area is going to be promoted to allow deer to get in there. And there's some strategies behind that that are really important. We'll talk about those in another, another date. But some of the prime examples I see in the landscape are Japanese stiltgrass. I've been on multiple properties where it's all over the place. I'm having to really work hard with the clients because it spreads like tremendously throughout the landscape. And in my area, garlic mustard's all over the place and it takes over big time. I can see that in some of my key areas and it takes a lot to deal with it. It, There's a lot of work that goes into both those plants and it's really hard in some cases to hope that the natural plants that are native on your landscape are going to outcompete it. That may not happen. Again, the interference thing is difficult to deal with. All right, so let me tell you, this is my biggest, biggest takeaway, and I want people to pay attention to this. Multifunction. Multifunction. When I talk about plants, and I'm not going to get into every definition and every example, but I'll give you a couple key things. When I look at a plant, how does it function? Does it have a magnitude or multifunction across the landscape? Does this individual plant provide food for my animals? Is it a nitrogen fixer? Does it accumulate nutrients? Does it repel pests? Does it allow me to make mulch? Is it a pollinator? Now, this is some of the examples of multifunction, but when you look at a plant, you need to define its purpose. And does it do something for you? Does it do something for your deer on the landscape? So this is what I use as my deciding of the factor if that tree stays or goes. I'm going to give you an example of a non-native situation. I walked on a property and bush honeysuckle was this low epicorn branching bush is all over the place. I mean, it's, it's from here to, you know, the end of the property and it's just in the largest abundance. And the, the client says to me, I've got some of the best cover around. I said, you do, but this is going to become a deer desert. At some point, the way these plants grow, the abundance of them across the landscape won't allow for space. There's no space. The deer won't even be able to get into some of these areas because this plant interferes so greatly across the landscape. Well, it provides great cover. It absolutely does. In fact, the DNR in some of these states like Michigan recommended that plant. 
years ago in the 80s. And let's not blame them, but they, they introduced that plant because it does. It helps stabilize the soil. It's got wildlife value. Deer will browse those plants. And the berries are eaten by songbirds. And, of course, that helps promote it across the landscape. And the one thing about bush honeysuckle that drives me nuts is it is allelopathic. It produces toxins. You'll notice that it's great cover for cottontail rabbits. I always see cottontail rabbits in there. But it actually creates this large desert around it. The ground is drier. It's a nitrogen-fixing plant. It produces its own nitrogen. It's able to live on its own without the complementary of other plants adjacent to it. It's really important to kind of look at a plant and start to understand what it does. And you'll notice there's a lack of moisture around that plant. But what it doesn't do is provide a large benefit to our deer. It may provide a cover benefit, but it doesn't provide a food benefit. Plant provides food and cover benefit. It's on my list of good. And if it doesn't, it may have to go. So in those cases, what do you do? What do you start with? Well, you remove it a little bit at a time and you try to get it you know, down to a manageable situation. You take an acre or two or five at a time. And a plant like that, you can rip out with your, your tractor bucket. You can burn the torch example that I gave earlier. You can spray it, but you got to get rid of it. And you got to have a strategy behind it because you could put a better plant in its place, a plant that has more function. And that is a huge takeaway. In fact, that's a major secret to how I design properties. And it may sound basic, but if it doesn't have function, a lot of function, it's not on my list. All right. So let's get into the five most common invasive plants on the landscape. And this is in my region, so I apologize. But I'm going to label off the five top. I'm going to give you some examples of a few other ones. And I'm going to give you recommendations to replace those. A lot of these do really well in the same areas that these non-native plants that interfere, that are invasive across the landscape. The first one is autumn olive. We just talked about bush honeysuckle. But bush honeysuckle and autumn olive, man, those two plants are a pain to deal with. And I have them on my own property. In some cases, I haven't removed them all. And because I want to put a plant in its place, and I'm recognizing that it's on the landscape. So for autumn olive, I would recommend replacing it with witch hazel. That's a great bushy plant. It does really well. Gray dogwood is another one that creates great structure, screening, etc. And serviceberry, which is my absolute Allegheny serviceberry, is my absolute one of my favorite plants. It does really well in a lot of areas. It creates a lot of uh, cover. And in some cases, deer will consume it. There's a few variants to that that deer consume better than others. But uh, Allegheny serviceberry is a good example. All right, let's talk about the bush honeysuckle. My favorite plants to replace that are really two. Uh, nine bark, I love that plant. It's one of my favorite bushes. And staghorn sumac. So get your notes out because I want everyone to kind of get these down. Beautyberry is another alternative uh, for those that have beautyberry in your landscape. That would be a good replacement plant. And if they're kind of moist areas, I use buttonbush a lot. Buttonbush does really well around moist areas. And by the way, you know, your bush honeysuckles will grow in, in moist areas. Multifurrow rose is one of those plants that you love it, you hate it. It's a consumable. Deer love to eat it, but it just takes over. I mean, it's a plant that cry, I've seen it climb up trees 40 feet. It's crazy, the, the volume of it across the landscape. You can cut it back. You can keep it in young state, and deer will consume it. But are there better? Are there better options? Well, if you're in kind of a moist area, elderberry, absolutely. And that could be a plant that is a consumable. 
for, for humans. It creates great structure and cover. Witch hazel, like I said earlier, that would be a good replacement plant. And St. John's wort, which is a great shrub, that would be an awesome replacement for, for multifloral rose. All right, let's talk about another one, black swallow wart. That is all over the place. When I was on my property, Tim Russell, who's been on this this uh, podcast, said, man, you've got black swallow wart. What are you doing with it? And I said, it's in my fields. It's in my edges. I've got to spray it and kill it. And that's exactly what I did. I typically spray it and kill it, and I stay on top of it. It's got to grow. I usually kill it in the, I think in the month of July was when I killed it last. But it's got to grow. Uh, Glyphosate, triclopyr, those are good examples. So some of the alternatives, these are kind of, Viney suggestions, uh, they kind of compete well with it, would be a trumpet honeysuckle, which is a naturalized honeysuckle or a native naturalized honeysuckle, and Virginia creeper. Those are all over the place around here. That would be a good alternative. So let me uh, end with another one here. This would be number five, Japanese barberry. So I have Japanese barberry in my property. It's on clients' properties. One of the most Obvious uh, examples is nine bark. I use nine bark for a lot of things, and that would be a great replacement plant. Red osier dogwood, that's another good one. That is one of probably you know the most emphasized plants at this point. And last would be uh, northern uh, bayberry. I use it in a lot of different settings. I've recommended a lot of different clients, but that's another kind of shrubby bush that would take over. Let me tell you a quick story about Japanese barberry. Japanese barberry, you know, was introduced in you know, I think probably the 1800s, but it became uh, more well-known in the 80s, the 1980s. It's deer-resistant, and you'll find it in kind of a lot of cooler areas. Actually, today I was on my property. It was on a north-facing slope, and I normally sit on north-facing slopes, and it takes over an area. Best time to kill it is in the summertime. I have a tendency to spray it and kill it. But one of the things with the barberry, the way it forms, and a lot of times you'll see it in landscape settings because it's kind of got this kind of cool look to it, You'll find a lot of ticks around it because of the volume of moisture and, of course, ticks carry Lyme disease. They'll be all over the place. Uh, there was a study done a few years ago that where barberry is present on the landscape, there's 40 ticks per acre versus where it doesn't at 10 ticks per acre. And that was a study done, I think, in the oh, probably 10 years ago. But again, you know, that's just one example where a plant like that you know, has a a negative consequence to having it on the landscape. And of course, you know, there's a whole bunch of plants. I'm trying to think of one right now that, uh, that I see quite a bit. Um, Oh, Norway maples. Uh, I have them. My neighbor has them in their yard. Uh, It's got maroon leaves. It's beautiful. You know, that that's a not, that's not a native plant and there's alternatives. Red maple would be a better option than that plant. Pin oak, you know, pin oak does really well in our areas. Uh, hackberry would be one I'm thinking, I think that's pretty much it. You could replace it with beach. But, you know, trying to find an alternative to making a recommendation. You know, autumn olive, and I I explained this earlier, is really kind of one of those plants that I think, you know, the DNR pushed in all those those years ago and kind of like the bush honeysuckle. And it's tough because a lot of people see it as as a, a dense shrub it's it's a thicket forming plant potentially and many of them can grow together uh more so bush honeysuckle does that but it creates great cover and it's great for erosion and it's hard to get people saying okay what else does it do is it a source of food for deer and allegheny serviceberry is a good example where you know it is a source of food for deer and it does produce food and it does have the same structure and it can be used for nesting 
So trying to think about the benefits of alternatives, alternative plants that don't have toxins that eliminate plants adjacent to it are the main reason I want to get rid of a lot of the, you know, non-native plants in the landscape. All right. I think that's it for the podcast today. I think I gave you a lot of examples of things that I'm thinking about. You know, it's, it's a lot to consider. And most times we're trying to have a multifunction approach. You know, the, the strategy is plants that do a lot of things for our landscape that are going to provide a source of food, a source of cover. I give the idea of evaluating your property for, you know, landscape features and those interfering plants that become problematic. I gave you recommendations. So think about the five plants that we went through. You know, we went through autumn olive, bush honeysuckle, multiflora rose, black swallowwort, and Japanese barberry. Think about the alternatives that I listed for those and write those down. Start to think about your property a little bit more. What alternatives can I provide in the landscape? Don't be scared about getting your hands dirty and start cutting back, you know, buckthorns or cutting back the multiflora rose. Start to work on those in the landscape. The more you get rid of those, the more space that you have. And in that space, you can have a better replacement. And don't think that just because you've got to put a plant there and you've got to manage it and it's going to take time, you know, you're not doing something for the environment. You absolutely are. And you're trying to help your deer. And that's the most important thing. We want more insects. We want more birds. We want to look at the ecological system and we want it to be as productive as possible. Having bees and wasps and all those in the landscape are huge. And having the insects for our young poults, our turkeys, you know, think turkeys this time of year. And of course, you know, we want food for deer. That'll get you to the end game. That'll improve your property. Again, I would appreciate if everybody could go in and give a five-star rating. A comment would be great. Thanks for listening. I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.